Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to Heritage Foundation. I'm Andrew Parks, the Assistant Director for Lectures and Seminars. Uh, thank you for joining us today in the Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. I just wanted to take this uh, opportunity to remind everyone to please silence their cell phones. And for those watching online, uh, we encourage you to submit questions by emailing speaker at heritage.org. It's now my pleasure to introduce the host of today's program. She is the Director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at the Heritage Foundation, Emily Cow. Thank you, Andrew, and welcome. <clears throat> 17 years ago this month, on September 11th, Americans awakened to the reality of global terror in the homeland. Then President George W. Bush declared a global war on terror. And as the UN General Assembly begins tomorrow, the world continues to search for answers and strategies to combat the growth of radical political theologies. Not only do we see the continued popularity of violent Muslim groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but also the rise of militant Hinduism in India and the influence of radical Theravada Buddhism in Burma. The victims of these radical political theologies include indigenous populations, particularly religious minorities, Christians and Ahmadiyya Muslims in Pakistan, Muslims and Christians in India, and Rohingya Muslims in Burma, as well as the victims overseas in Europe and America. Governments have struggled between two extremes. First, there has been a tendency among some, including particularly Western leaders, to secularize religious conflicts and religious actors, declaring that they are purely motivated by economic, social, and political factors and downplaying their own declarations of religious motives. Second, there has been a failure to recognize the battles within these religions for influence, the battles between those who seek tolerance and those who do not. <clears throat> Both approaches have led to and require a renewed examination of religious freedom's role in fostering peace in religiously diverse societies. Today we will hear from two internationally recognized experts who have devoted their lives to answering the question, how can we foster religious freedom in diverse societies? First I'll introduce Bishop Nazir Ali and then he will speak and then I will introduce Ambassador Haqqani. Bishop Michael Nazir Ali is the president of Oxford Center for Training, <coughs> Research, Advocacy, and Dialogue. He is the 106th, 106th Bishop of Rochester, 
former Bishop of Rywind in Pakistan as, and has been visiting Bishop of the Diocese of South Carolina since 2010. He is originally from Southwest Asia and was a member of the House of Lords where he was an active, active in both domestic and international concerns. He has both a Christian and a Muslim family background. His secondary education was, was in Pakistan and he read economics, sociology, and Islamic history at the University of Karachi and theology at Fitzwilliam College and Ridley Hall, Cambridge. He has been a researcher at the University of Oxford, Harvard University, and in Australia. His interests include several fields, comparative literature, philosophy of religion, and theology. He is senior fellow of Wycliffe Hall at Oxford, an honorary fellow of St. Edmund Hall in Cambridge. He has been a visiting professor at a number of universities as well. He's the author of 13 books, including Triple Jeopardy for the West, Aggressive Secularism, Radical Islamism, and Multiculturalism. Please join me in welcoming the bishop. Thank you very much, Emily. Um, what I want to do, uh, first of all, is to ask um, uh, when there are such um, traditions of tolerance and cultures and religion, why is it that they are being neglected? So I want to begin with... Um, oh, that works. Uh, I don't know if people recognize that object. Uh, but um, it is the cylinder of Cyrus, uh, the Persian king, uh, at the time of the return of the Jewish people from exile in Babylon. I was in Tehran a couple of years ago when this cylinder, which is usually kept in the British Museum, had been lent to the National University uh, uh, National Museum in Tehran. And I was at a dialogue with some government officials there and I began by saying what a great tradition of tolerance in Persian culture this cylinder represented. And the answer I got from the person presiding uh, at our gathering was, Bishop, we are not interested in the past, we are only interested in the future. Well, this is a, well, I thought it was a regrettable response because unless you understand your past, how are you going to uh, live the future. Um, then um, let's have a look at another slide. Uh, uh, this is one of the pillars of Ashoka. You know, Ashoka had a very bloody career, if you'll excuse a bishop using that word, um, in unifying uh, many parts of India under his rule. But then he was converted to Buddhism. And he erected uh, many of these pillars, and there are inscriptions also uh, around uh, South Asia, uh, which declare freedom of religion uh, for the people of the subcontinent, uh, just as the cylinder of Cyrus did for people in his empire, in the Persian Empire. Um, now again, the question here is, um, if this is what Ashoka was doing then, why is this freedom being denied to people today in many Buddhist countries? Uh, Myanmar has been mentioned already. Uh, Sri Lanka is a 
another example of a Buddhist country, uh, and also, of course, India today. Um, why are these pillars not pointing the way to the future? I mean, they are, of course, artifacts from the past. Uh, but why are those who are making policy today not taking their cue from this kind of tradition? Here is something else. Um, I don't know if you recognize it. Um, oh, sorry. What have I done there? Yeah. Um, this is Constantine. And uh, that is not the Edict of Milan, by the way. That's the Nicene Creed he's holding. Uh, but he was also responsible for the Edict of Milan, which was neither an edict uh, nor from Milan, but we'll let that go. Uh, now, the Edict of Milan is often understood uh, to mean the emancipation of the Christian church, and it, it certainly was that, uh, but it was not only that. It was a proclamation of religious liberty um, for all the citizens of the empire. And the narrowing of it to Christians came, came much later. Well, here is another tradition of tolerance that goes right back to the history uh, of the West. And what is this? This is the Dastur al-Madina, the constitution of Medina, uh, promulgated by the Prophet of Islam after his arrival in Medina and when he became the uh, the temporal as well as the spiritual leader in that place. And it is an agreement between uh, the Jews, the pagans, and the two kinds of Muslims, the Ansar, the people of Medina who had become Muslims, and the Muhajireen, the, the refugees who had come from Mecca, assigning uh, equal rights and responsibilities to all the inhabitants of Medina. Now, People say to me in different parts of the world that they want to have an Islamic state. And I say to them, uh, will it be like the first Islamic state? And if not, why not? Uh, so I'm glad that this constitution has been at last mentioned in the Marrakesh Declaration. We may want to talk about that later. Uh, it has, of course, as any historical document, its own limitations. Uh, but at the moment, uh, my question is, why is it being neglected uh, in terms of polity and especially uh, in relation to diverse societies in the Muslim world today? What do we got next? Yes, this is Magna Carta, of course. And um, some people think, and I want to challenge this but because it is relevant, some people think that... Um, uh, Freedom of belief discourse uh, began with the Enlightenment. Uh, it didn't. I mean, there's a very long prehistory, uh, and it uh, you know began with Alfred the Great uh, and the way in which he created uh, what is now known as the common law tradition, which is uh, uh, found in uh, many English-speaking countries. Uh, the Charter of uh, Liberties uh, under Henry I, uh, Magna Carta, the various bills of rights. Uh, I have argued uh, in the context of the Arab Spring that democracy is not enough. Uh, democracy is never enough uh, because it can simply lead to the tyranny of the majority. Uh, that's no less tyranny because it is of the majority. And this is why we have a, a Bill of Rights tradition which ensures the rights of people uh, who may never be a majority. 
Um, the question is, uh, with all these traditions of tolerance and the UN, uh, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which articulates uh, many of the values uh, that that are found in these ancient documents, um, why uh, is the Universal Declaration honored more in the breach than in the observance? Um, Article 18, uh, guaranteeing freedom not just of belief and of expression, uh, but also of uh, uh, the right to change one's uh, beliefs. Um, why is that um, not only neglected but violated in so many parts of the world? And of course, there are many different reasons um, for this. Um, there is, um, um, no, that's Asia Bibi. Now, how she appeared so quickly? Um, actually, a very good paper that I've just seen that Heritage have issued on Asia Bibi that you may want to, to see that. Um, let's see what I think here it's Iran. Yeah, no, I think that's we have chauvinistic uh, nationalism with a religious color. I was in Bosnia during the uh, civil war there, and I saw uh, what chauvinistic nationalism with a religious color could look like uh, with a Christian face in in this in this um, case. Um, but, of course, we are seeing that uh, in India today with uh, Hindu Twa and the challenge that poses for Muslims and Christians and other uh, groups uh, in India. Uh, we have... Um, yeah, these are... Sorry, that's... Let's see now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there is also uh, the remains of um, Marxism... Um, which um, bring challenges to religious liberty. China is a leading example of this, but also Vietnam and Laos, uh, and indeed um, some of the Central Asian states. There's also simple tyranny, uh, where um, centralization, secular or religious, can lead uh, to tyranny. Eritrea is an example. Uh, there are some uh, in the region we are discussing today as well. But Rahman Chishti, uh, a Muslim MP uh, in Britain, has said that 80% of the persecution of Christians takes place in the Islamic world. Now, I don't know what he means by 80%, whether he means the intensity of persecution or the numbers of people being persecuted or the incidence of persecution. However, I think he is basically right in identifying this as an issue. And um, uh, the question is why and in what ways? Well, um, why? Because uh, there has been in the last 60, 70 years uh, widespread Islamic resurgence. This has its positive sides. I don't want to deny them. A greater awareness of people's own tradition and background and culture um, and the contribution of their religion uh, to civilization. That's the positive side. But the negative side has been the emergence of various kinds of uh, fundamentalist 
uh, Islamist radicalism. I mean, all of these terms can be contested, of course, but uh, uh, you've got to call it something, call them something, uh, these movements. Um, and they have brought about not only a restriction in uh, the freedoms of groups like women, I mean, women are not a minority, you know, they're uh, in any country, but uh, they're, they're, they've been significant, significantly affected by these movements. I myself have been involved in trying to ease the situation of women uh, in cooperation with people like the Women's Action Forum in Pakistan and uh, the late Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. Uh, but they've also restricted uh, the basic freedoms of uh, religious minorities uh, in a number of ways as citizens and as believers. Um, <clears throat> of course, the situation varies from country to country, but uh, there is, first of all, uh, what you might call um, this is uh, this is not state sponsored of course but this is the result of terrorist activity extremist activity this is the bombing of all saints church in peshawar uh, and the the suicide bomber bombed the congregation as the sunday school was coming out of church. So most of the people killed were children. I mean, this, is, this was deliberate. Uh, and numerous incidents, uh, not only related to churches, but to Ahmadi mosques and many, and even Shia mosques, uh, Ismaili uh, gatherings and so on, um, you know, can be mentioned. Uh, attacks on villages, um, uh, whole villages, sometimes parts of a particular town, uh, all of this takes place. Uh, this is at one level. Uh, then there is um, what you might call widespread uh, prejudice and discrimination that has been nurtured, for example, by the teaching of hate in the textbooks, uh, by... Uh, um, sermons and other kinds of interventions over public address systems from mosques and madrasas, uh, which has created a mentality of prejudice, isolation, separateness, uh, and hate of another group or, or persons. Uh, there is uh, discrimination in terms of employment, educational opportunity, social mobility, all of those things. Yeah, that other church there, by the way, is Bethel Memorial Church in Quetta, which was more recently bombed. Uh, and uh, the, the bombing was actually recorded by CCTV, so we actually know how it was done. Um, but then there is also what you may call state-level um, discrimination. So... Um, uh, now, where is she? Yeah, this is, uh, this is uh, by the way, a prayer group in Iran. Um, um, these house churches, 
the small house churches of uh, believers in Iran have come under specific um, scrutiny of the of the authorities in Iran, and many of these people are arrested simply for meeting like this and praying. Just for that, uh, a one group was arrested for celebrating Holy Communion in, at a picnic spot, and the the pastor was given ten years in prison. Uh, so this is state policy. I mean, there's no two ways about it. And so is this. This is Asya Bibi, uh, who was tried and convicted of blasphemy uh, against the Prophet of Islam and sentenced to death. Uh, she's the mother of uh, several children, uh, two of whom are there, but there are other children as well. She's been held in prison for many years now. Uh, and the state has not been able to resolve her case. Um, the blasphemy laws, um, I find, to be quite honest, uh, very difficult uh, to understand. Uh, my Muslim friends and relatives have said to me all my life um, that when the Prophet of Islam was insulted, uh, he forgave those who insulted him. So I have said to them, how then can there be a law that prescribes mandatory death uh, for insulting such a person? And the answer that some, I've sometimes been given is, well, we are not the prophet of Islam. Yes, but uh, I also understand from Muslims that they're bound to follow his sunnah, which is his practice. So how is this following his practice? I mean, this is an argument if you like, from Muslim logic itself, quite apart from human rights issues that we may also want to discuss. So this has happened at a number of levels, uh, and it continues to happen on a daily basis uh, in many countries. Uh, I am familiar with Egypt, uh, with Iraq, with Syria, with Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Um, and um, as uh, my friend Rahman Chishti says, it accounts for the majority of the persecution of Christians, but on, not only uh, Christians, the Ahmadiyya uh, in Pakistan, the Baha'i in Iran, and, um, and the, of course the Yazidis uh, in Iraq. Now, what can we do about this, uh, finally? Um, I think the first thing is... Uh, what we are doing in relation to the international agencies. So the five-yearly review of nations by the Human Rights Committee of the United Nations is a very important uh, time uh, when we should be engaged uh, about uh, what is happening, particularly uh, with state sanction um, in some of these countries. Uh, but that is not the only occasion. The General Assembly is about to meet and... Um, that is another big occasion when these matters can be taken up at the highest level, sometimes are taken up at the highest level. Uh, secondly, now this is of course for you to decide, but I can certainly ask the question uh, in relation to the United States. I do ask the question in relation to the United Kingdom, of course, also. Uh, how is the 
the foreign policy and the military policy and the aid policy of the United States integrated with its policy on human rights. I mean, these things cannot be held in separate compartments altogether. And the one is bound to influence the other. And a nation that is systematically violating the fundamental freedoms of its own citizens uh, cannot be trusted um, in other ways uh, in terms of uh, its relationships uh, internationally. A respect for the freedoms of its own citizens uh, is fundamental to how it is seen in the comity of nations. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, um, it is certainly uh, possible uh, to ask uh, how the policy of the United States or, or of the United Kingdom is affecting uh, freedoms for ordinary people in a particular country, let us say Pakistan, um, as an example. Um, so, uh, the United Kingdom uh, is involved in a huge educational aid exercise for Pakistan. I welcome that very much. Um, it is uh, to the tune of 600 million uh, pounds sterling over several years. But the question is, what is this aid going to be used for? If it is going to be used for propagating the teaching of hate in textbooks, you see, then you're simply spreading hate. So unless you have some policy about the teaching of hate in textbooks, there's no point having a large educational aid budget. You know, this is how things are, are interconnected, if you like. Uh, thirdly, the question of advocacy that each one of us and the agencies we represent have an obligation to be advocates for those who often have no voice of their own. So that uh, this house group um, uh, in uh, Iran, I mean, these people are voiceless. Nobody is going to speak for them if you are not going to speak for them. Then, um, the question of solidarity by visiting. Um, one of the things I realized about the war in Syria is that nobody is visiting the minorities in Syria. Uh, and what is happening to them from both sides is absolutely horrendous. Uh, Christians, Yazidis, Druze, uh, even certain kinds of Muslim groups. And then there is the question, of course, of giving, of generosity, uh, particularly to these groups. I was so glad to be reassured at the State Department the other day that the United States government is actively involved in the rebuilding of communities on the Nineveh Plains. I think this is very, um, very important that you should be, but this kind of example can be multiplied in a number of ways. Going and giving, advocacy, relating uh, to international agencies and affecting your own government's policies so that they are better integrated. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Ambassador Hussein Haqqani served as Pakistan's ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011. 
He's widely credited with managing a difficult partnership during a critical phase in the global war on terrorism. His distinguished career in government includes serving as an advisor to four Pakistani prime ministers. He is the author of several books, including Pakistan Between Mosque and Military, Magnificent Delusions, Pakistan, the United States, and An Epic History of Misunderstanding, and most recently, Reimagining Pakistan, Transforming a Dysfunctional Nuclear State. He is an expert on radical Islamist movements, along, and along with Hillel Fradkin and Eric Brown, he's the co-editor of Hudson Institute's signature journal, Current Trends in Islamist Ideology. He was formerly director of the Center of International Relations at Boston University. His education um, was, was in Pakistan at University of Karachi, where he received a bachelor's and master's degree in international relations. And Ambassador Haqqani acquired traditional Islamic learning as well as a modern education in international relations. He was also a journalist for the Islamic World Review following the Iranian Revolution. And he was the Pakistan and Afghanistan correspondent for the Far Eastern Economic Review, where he covered the war in Afghanistan. Please join me in welcoming Ambassador Haqqani. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Uh, it's such a uh, pleasure being here. Uh, it's always an advantage to speak after uh, Bishop uh, Nazir Ali because he has covered most of the bases. So I can now just elaborate on what he has already laid out in front of you. Um, I would just begin by saying that the concept of religious toleration uh, has always been around, but so has been the persecution of religious minorities. And the problem is not just about legal regimes or having a legal framework that guarantees rights to people, but building an attitude in society and building a culture of tolerance. And what we are seeing in the last few years in particular is that that culture of tolerance that had come about for a brief period in human history, especially since the Enlightenment, uh, though, uh, as the bishop rightly points out, uh, the concepts have been there going far back into history, uh, that has started coming apart. Uh, governments have become quite shameless uh, in violating the uh, Article 18 of the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, new excuses have been invented for religious persecution. Uh, new not in the sense of the sum total of human history. They are not new. They've been around. But for the modern era, to try and explain why we do what we do instead of acknowledging that what we do is unacceptable. So, for example, the example was already given of how uh, Hindu uh, extremism in India is described as Hindu nationalism. The Muslims and the Christians can be persecuted because they represent uh, foreign religions, even though they have been Christians in India for almost 2,000 years and Muslims in India for almost 1,400 years. And yet the argument is that this religion is not from this soil, therefore it is somehow okay to attack churches, uh, to attack mosques, uh, to create local laws, or in case the law doesn't exist, create an environment of anger and hatred towards Christians for consuming beef, 
because it is not something that is allowed by the Hindu uh, set of beliefs or part of the Hindu set of beliefs because Hinduism also has multiple sets of beliefs within it. And similarly, attacking Muslims is somehow justified to do that. A similar pattern exists on the other side of the border in Pakistan, where I come from, where the Ahmadiyya uh, Muslims are persecuted by law. Pakistan has the only constitution in the world which has a provision that defines what it means to be a Muslim and the definition is worded in a way in which the Ahmadiyya, who consider themselves a sect within Islam, are described as non-Muslims. And then they are deprived of the right to vote because they are neither Muslim nor non-Muslim because they, don't, they, are not, they are not Muslim by the definition of the constitution, but they cannot have the privileges of the non-Muslims because they do not acknowledge themselves to be non-Muslims. Um, try and visualize a situation in which, say, for example, there was a constitutional amendment to the U.S. Constitution that described uh, Christians in a very limiting way and said only people who belong to XYZ denominations would be considered as Christians, and people belonging to, say, uh, the Church of Latter-day of uh, 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 Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints uh, will not be considered Christian for legal purposes. That creates a whole series of, uh, of uh, uh, discriminations, legal discriminations, including how, uh, uh, whether they have the right to be able to get their passports because they have to then declare themselves to be non-Muslims uh, to be able to have a passport that describes them as non-Muslim. And many of them object to it on religious grounds because they consider themselves Muslims. Um, and when you ask a Pakistani official, and I wasn't a good Pakistani official in my time as a Pakistani official because I didn't always stick to official talking points, which is why now I live in the United States in exile. Uh, <clears throat> the official Pakistani view on this is, well, no, 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 no. We are not discriminating against Ahmadiyya. All we are doing is telling them that they need to start acknowledging that they are not Muslim. The moment they describe themselves as non-Muslim, then they have all the rights that all non-Muslims have in the country. So you're creating a three-tier system of citizens, Muslim citizens, non-Muslim citizens, and the Ahmadiyya who consider themselves Muslims but whom the state considers non-Muslim. Again, a nationalist political uh, argument being invoked for discrimination instead of acknowledging that discrimination takes place. Uh, another instrument of legal legalized um, discrimination, especially in the Muslim world, are blasphemy laws and apostasy laws. The UN Declaration clearly allows people not only the right to have belief and religion, but also the right to have uh, the right to be able to change that belief and religion. How can you give somebody the right of faith and then not allow them to rediscover themselves or their own faith. So, for example, there's always the possibility there might be somebody born in the Hindu family, but he may meet somebody who actually brings, them, brings him or her into unto Christ or into Islam or a person who's born a Muslim and then discovers that the faith that appeals to them is the Christian faith. By forbidding uh, conversion, and saying that conversion leads to apostasy and apostasy is unlawful, this fundamental freedom is denied. And so that's another element of the legal regime. Of course, the third one, Bishop Zirali very explained in great detail, is the totalitarian or authoritarian regimes that actually forbid 
religious freedom uh, by law uh, or, or by actual practice of the state by denying people the right to build churches uh, in Iran or in uh, China or in North Korea. Um, um, and, uh, and also, I would argue, that in countries uh, like uh, some, in the, uh, some other countries in the Middle East, which have strict regulations, again, defining what places of worship are allowed and what are not allowed. So, for example, new Christian denominations cannot build a church in uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, the argument being that any historic church that has existed, if there are still worshippers there, they can go there. And of course, since no, none there, so Saudi Arabia, if you notice, just Google, you'll find they describe themselves as a 100% Muslim country. So anybody who's not a, 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 a Muslim is somehow not a Saudi. Uh, that's that's a, uh, a, a a legal uh, act of discrimination. Mm. Uh, so 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 that denial of the right to be able to change religion, the right to be able to organize yourself once you uh, whatever your faith, that is part of this whole legal regime of discrimination. But I would argue that there is another level of religious discrimination that is now finding. Uh, a lot of ground all over the world. And that is using national security arguments to discriminate against people and their religions, um, uh, using social and cultural and uh, lack of assimilation arguments. Uh, and that, by the way, applies to Muslims now increasingly in Western countries as well. Whether we like it or not, it is a reality. Now, the whole point of uh, the... Um, of standing up for religious freedom is standing up for my own freedom is the easiest thing. Everybody stands for their own freedom. Secondly, I have not yet met a person who acknowledges that they are intolerant. If you have, please introduce me to them. Somebody who says, you know what? I'm a bigot. I've never met anybody who says I'm a bigot. The problem is that people are bigots and try to justify it by other means and other arguments. But the most important thing to try and end this persecution of Christians who are minorities in other countries, Muslims who are minorities in other countries, Hindus who are minorities in other countries, Buddhists who are minorities in other countries. By the way, Bishop, I have always found it ironic that Buddhism is supposed to be this extremely pacifist religion. And yet there are people belonging to that religion who have no qualms. And I have served as Pakistan's High Commissioner to Sri Lanka, as you know, Pakistan's ambassador. I went and met the leaders of the, uh, of the Buddhist Mahasangha there. And I said, I am hearing that you people have been saying a few harsh things about people of other religions, the minority religions. And could you explain to me how that is compatible with the fundamental Buddhist trait? So one of them turns around to me and says, no, 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 no. That's not... Uh, that's not compatible with our religion. We agree. But it is not incompatible with the requirements of our religion in Sri Lanka. Try and, try and go over this for a minute. So it's not our religion and its universal principles require us to be tolerant and not be violent. But the survival of our religion in Sri Lanka requires that we be, into be intolerant. That kind of reasoning... Uh, uh, is 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 increasing in many places, and Buddhism is supposed to be pacifist, and yet these people find no uh, 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 no shame in actually invoking the religion for violent purposes. And this is uh, uh, 
So, so, so if people understood that in this day and age, the agreed-upon definition of religious freedom is the one that is in Article 18 of the United Nations Charter on Human Rights. And just for convenience, I have pulled it up so I can read it just so that we are all reminded of it and the wording of it. Everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief. And freedom, either alone or in community with others, and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. That definition now needs to be, uh, it was adopted when the universe, United Nations Declaration of Human Rights was adopted. That now needs not only to be practiced, but also needs to be adapted in our political, social, and cultural discourses all over the world. Um, just to give an example, uh, it is very easy for a political leader to mobilize the majority by creating hatred towards the minority. It happens everywhere. And it's very easy for somebody belonging to one religious group or another to be mobilized uh, 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 along those lines. Um, we have seen the worst excesses of lack of religious freedom in the actions of the Taliban when they ruled Afghanistan before 9-11. Uh, we have seen that in the coming of ISIS and its behavior in the parts of Syria and Iraq that they controlled, uh, the uh, enslavement of uh, Yazidis and Christians uh, and even Shia in some cases, uh, the uh, actions of terrorist groups that attack places of worship of other religions, uh, the suicide bombings that the bishop referred to, very important because here are people who think that their religion allows them to blow themselves up in a way in which they will end up killing people of another religion in large numbers, including women and children. Uh, these are all manifestations of two or three phenomena. One is a tendency to assert supremacy of one religion. Our religion is supreme and therefore we are somehow entitled to kill others who do not have the same religion as us. Um, second is the uh, desire and my wife uh, Faranaz Ispahani who doesn't seem to have made it here. She was supposed to come here. Uh, she uh, had a book published uh, about Pakistan's religious minorities under the title Purifying the Land of the Pure. And what she argues in that is that Pakistan was created as the land of the pure. The word Pakistan means land of the pure, a Muslim country, a Muslim homeland in South Asia. Yet, there is a desire on the part of some people to purify it further. And purification here basically means, first, you know, you, you, you reduce the number of people who are non-Muslims, then among Muslims you start choosing which sect or which denomination is more pure. And this process of purification, she says, is a form of... Uh, uh, communal majoritarianism, which essentially is endless. Because first they said we have to create a Muslim country that is separate from the Hindus, Hindu majority. So Pakistan came into being. The Hindus got expelled by in large numbers. Christians were okay uh, when when Bishop was growing in, growing up in Karachi, especially in the early years. 
there wasn't such a big problem for Christians in those days. Um, but later on, they also became an inconvenience. Then the Ahmadis have been targeted. Then the Shias who are a sect of Islam. And we will end up returning and reverting to an earlier era when religion was used for wars and battles and confrontations. So what can be done? Uh, I would endorse the recommendations of the bishop, but I would also say it is important, first of all, to actually confront all these excuses for violation of religious freedom. No nationalist excuse is acceptable. This equating of a country with a religion basically paves the way for the discrimination against other religions. So this country is a Hindu country, as is the argument in India. It's a Hindu country. We will define what it means to be a Hindu, and those religions that are foreign to India are therefore liable to persecution. That is a flawed argument. Or in case of Pakistan, this is a Muslim country, other religions, etc., etc. Nationalism is an excuse has to end. Legal discriminations must actually have some kind of an international agreement on how to deal with. We need to figure out how to deal with blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, discrimination laws. Asia Bibi, whose case was referred to earlier, she she's in prison under a blasphemy charge. She's a poor berry picker. She's not a very sophisticated uh, you know, university intellectual writing a thesis on religion or something. In some interaction with somebody, we don't know whether she said something or she didn't, but her words are supposed to have been, quote-unquote, blasphemous. So therefore, she has been convicted. And I agree wholeheartedly with Bishop Nazir Ali that just as Christians believe in a, uh, in a just God and, a, and, and consider uh, Jesus as the uh, uh, salvation of humankind, the Muslim belief about Prophet Muhammad is that he is rahmatul Alameen, that he is the prophet of mercy for the whole world. How can you believe in the message of mercy but not act with mercy? And that in itself is, a, I have argued, and it's an article you can find online, it's, a, it's, it's the roots of Muslim rage. It's the, it's the article with my name, just put it in, Google it, you'll find it. Uh, it was a few, couple of years ago in, uh, as a cover story on Newsweek. And I argue in that that the real blasphemers in the Muslim world are those who try to use violence and punishment against members of other religions and charge them with blasphemy. Because look, every religion inherently has some kind of argument that runs against the argument of another religion. That is why you need to be tolerant towards one another because otherwise if you start saying, well, your religion insults my religion, therefore I have the right to persecute your religion, then this will be an unending process throughout the world. And that is a process that we are currently seeing. Um, third thing that is needed, of course, is that religious freedom has to be an integral part of the policy or instruments of policy of specially uh, those countries that consider themselves leaders in promoting religious freedom. The United States, the United Kingdom, other Western countries. At some point, hopefully, India, which is the world's largest democracy, but has not been living up to its expectations as far as religious freedom are concerned. Japan, nations that must stand up and say that we will somehow isolate and in one way or another 
punish countries that do not observe religious freedom or who are the worst uh, offenders in case of a religious intolerance. So if governments that right now pay no price for either allowing or encouraging uh, religious extremism and religious intolerance, they have a penalty to pay. It's very, uh, one, one of the points I was making before we came on stage was, there are individuals who are directly involved in uh, uh, actions of uh, uh, leading to the persecution of, say, Christians or people of some other religion in some country. And yet, and yet, no Western government actually has specific actions designed in which they can stop those people from entering their own countries. On the other hand, we see several people not making any distinction between refugees, say, for example, coming from Syria, people who are suffering at the hand of ISIS, who have a right to refuge elsewhere, uh, women who have been enslaved by ISIS and who have now been freed. There should be a, a larger heart for them. Instead, there, there are policies that stop people from being able to come, but there are political figures, public figures, leading figures, Britain in particular has allowed some extremist preachers from the Muslim world to come into England without holding them accountable for things they did back in their own countries. And the United States in particular can certainly act in that regard before anybody else. So I'm going to stop here. I'm sure there's room for some discussion in the form of questions and answers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Those were some excellent recommendations. Um, I just want to ask one question, and then we'll open it up to the audience. So in 2010, the Chicago Council of Global Affairs um, had a task force. It was a bipartisan task force, religious and political leaders. And they made this comment about American foreign policy. They said that it's handicapped by an uncompromising Western secularism that feeds religious extremism and fails to encourage religious groups that promote peace and human rights. So you've... I think you've mentioned some of the efforts within Islam to um, promote peace and human rights and to tolerance and freedom for others. In the context of Abu Dhabi, we know that um, it was not only Christians, but it was also Muslims within Pakistan who defended her freedoms. And uh, both Shabazz Bhatti and Salman Tafir paid with their lives as they were assassinated for their defense of her. Do you think there are, I'd like you to comment on the efforts within Islam to promote pluralism, to promote freedom for non-Muslims, and whether you think the United States could be doing more, and how so? Well, sorry, shall I Please go begin? I mean, certain things uh, have been done. Uh, the Marrakesh Declaration, for instance, uh, explicitly, yeah, the uh, declaration uh, of a of a conference of um, Islamic countries which uh, focused on religious liberty, uh, but I think is unique uh, in mentioning, explicitly mentioning the constitution of Medina, uh, which, I, which I also mentioned. However, uh, what these declarations often don't mention, and I, I have not seen a single declaration emerging from an Islamic source, that acknowledges the right of people to change their religion. 
This is the neuralgic point. And this is from the very beginning, the Saudi Arabia uh, voted against the uh, Universal Declaration uh, for this reason. And then uh, when the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights uh, was being promulged, I think nearly every member state of the OIC, the Organization for Islamic Cooperation, has entered reservations uh, for the covenant to the point that many Western responses question their commitment to the covenant at all. Uh, but basically, it is about Article 18, freedom of religion, freedom to change your religion. Now, until that is addressed, we haven't got very far. Well, I mean, as, as a Muslim on the panel, let me say that uh, the reform efforts are too disparate and, uh, and, and uh, shall we say, too marginal within the, uh, within the political uh, climate of the Muslim world as a whole. Uh, there's more than uh, a billion Muslims in the world, and these exercises like the Marrakesh Declaration involve, for example, in, uh, in, uh, they often have the smaller Muslim countries taking the lead. So the United Arab Emirates has been very instrumental in trying to ignite some discussion about about toleration, religious toleration and religious tolerance, um, the Morocco and other relatively smaller. But the larger ones, mm. for example, Indonesia, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, which are between them, account for almost one third of the world's Muslim population, uh, they haven't taken these issues up and they are not, they are not acting on them. So, so what can be done? is to amplify the voices for reform within the Muslim world. Whatever you can do to, to enhance that and, uh, you know, give people a platform, then, as uh, Bishop Fazrili rightly points out, actually also ignite debate within the Muslim world. I mean, I would agree with him that those of us who say that the right to change religion is an integral part of the UN Declaration and should also be an integral part of any... Um, um, contemporaneous Muslim uh, acknowledgement of religious freedom uh, or, or the freedom of re uh, religion and belief. Uh, but we are in a very, very small minority, even among the Muslim reformers. There are a lot of people who are Muslim reformers to the sense that, yeah, 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 let, let's, let's not kill in the name of religion, let's not fight, let's not do that. But these two laws, the apostasy laws and set of laws, I would call them, the apostasy-related set of laws and the blasphemy-related set of laws. On this, the willingness to say that perhaps these concepts were a, uh, a concept for intervention of the state at in an earlier time, now you can believe in your heart that so-and-so is an apostate, but you cannot make that a operational part of the law. That argument has not yet found sufficient traction in the Muslim world and needs to. And it will require a lot of debate. And by the way, whoever is going to uh, articulate it will also need security guards uh, in future. But the argument does need to be made within the Muslim world that these are concepts which need to be... I mean, obviously, apostasy and blasphemy were also concepts in the Christian world, in the Western world, for a long time. People were actually put on the rack for them and, and, and inquisitions were held and things like that happened. But to try and re-invoke them in the 21st century would be rather difficult. 
and yet in the Muslim world that they are being invoked and most Muslim governments for political reasons do not stand up uh, uh, in, 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 in their favor, uh, in, in favor of eliminating them. And that needs to happen as well. And perhaps there's a role for U.S. economic and security assistance, uh, the way diplomacy is conducted. Most important thing is put it into the uh, into the mainstream of political and diplomatic discourse. Don't marginalize it. So, for example, the United States has a United States Commission of International Religious Freedom, but its authority is not like some of the other things. No country has so far had ever has ever been put on serious sanctions, sanctions that affect them on the ground of lack of religious freedom. And that should change. One example and many others will start amending their laws as well. Look, Islamic history has had many periods in which it all depended on how the governments, which way the governments were, were inclined. Even the rise and fall of which sect within Islam became more powerful depended on the way the governments behaved. Right now, the governments in the Muslim world, a vast majority of them, tend to encourage the elements that discourage religious freedom. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we'd like to open it up to questions from the audience. There's a lady in the back. And then Hello. Uh, so I would like I to identify yourself and then ask uh, yes. a question. My name is Bohumla Kleiblova and I'm uh, currently an intern in the U.S. Congress. I would like to ask two questions. So first is, why do you think that we care so much about what other people believe in? And the other question is, don't you think that uh, the religious freedom will be restricted as long as a religion is part of official politics in certain countries? I think you should take the first question. Why do we care so much about what somebody else's religion is? Well, I, I mean, I think both parts of the question are actually interrelated. Uh, the thing is, uh, I mean, the first thing to say is that secularity is not neutrality. Secularity is also a point of view, uh, just as religion is. And so, uh, you know, we don't have a neutral vantage point. I think the question is not whether religion should play a part uh, in public life, but what sort of part it should play. So if it's a part in public life is argument, the common good, um, and um, uh, persuasion rather than coercion, then of course religion has as much a role to play as anything else. But that, uh, because its role is persuasive and not coercive, you see, that, I mean, the issue is coercion in the name of religion or of anything else. We also have coercion in the name of secularity, for example, in the former Marxist countries. Uh, that is the issue. Um, and uh, I think if, we, if it was acknowledged generally, whether in the Islamic world or in the West, that the role of religion or a worldview is persuasion and not coercion, many of our problems would be solved. I think this gentleman in the front has a question. Uh, 
Uh, hi, my name is Chris Orr. I work for Sally Port Global in Balad Air Base, Iraq. However, I need to emphasize I'm not here on official company business. I'm actually taking some hard-earned R&R for my work in the Middle East. And I hasten to add I'm a loyal Heritage member and former Heritage intern back in the day. Uh, that long preamble aside, uh, both His Grace the Bishop and Ambassador Haqqani touched briefly upon Saudi Arabia. I just wonder if either one of them could piggyback upon that further. Um, as I'm sure both these gentlemen know, and as I can attest from personal travel experience, most of the Gulf Cooperation Council nations, namely Qatar, the UAE, and Kuwait, do allow some freedom of uh, the practice of Christianity within certain limits, of course, such as no public proselytization. Now, uh, keep it in mind that some of the sweeping reforms that uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been passing in Saudi, such as finding a lot of women to, women to drive, is there any kind of sliver of hope that maybe there will be some, uh, some you know, liberalization of the practice of non-Muslim religions within Saudi Arabia? Um, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman has promised some liberalization also for non-Muslim religions in uh, Saudi Arabia. We will have to wait for it to manifest itself in a way in which we can all find it satisfactory. Um, uh, it hasn't happened so far, but uh, he has spoken about, I, I did see one of his statements uh, about allowing churches uh, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. So let us see how that plays out. I just add something br very briefly to this. Uh, so had you finished, uh, Your Excellency? Um, one million Christians in Saudi, living in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, so it's not a small number. Uh, I just want to tell a story from the past as an illustration of how the past should influence the future. Uh, when the Prophet of Islam uh, wanted to conclude a treaty with the Christians of Najran, Najran is in the news again because it's on the frontier with the Yemen. He invited a delegation, which included bishops, uh, to visit him in Medina. And the Christian delegation was lodged in the Prophet's mosque and allowed to perform their Christian prayers, the divine liturgy, in the mosque. Now, today, if you try to go to Mecca and Medina and you're not a Muslim, you're met by those signs that say, if, you, if you're not Muslim and you go beyond this point, you do so at the risk of your life. But this is not the sunnah of the Prophet. I mean, what I would like to ask Muslims is on what basis, uh, you know, the, the, the Prophet of Islam concluded treaties with both Jews and Christians in different ways at different times, which nowhere restricted their worship uh, in, in, the, in peninsular Arabia. Uh, so what is the basis for not allowing churches uh, on Saudi territory, I, or, or indeed synagogues for that matter? And before, and before the rise of uh, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahab and his followers, uh, Christians managed, continued to have uh, churches in uh, the Arabian Peninsula. I think the last church was demolished in the 1960s yeah, in Riyadh. Possibly. So, so yeah. So, the, look, um, Bishop, you ask, uh, why don't Muslims, uh, you would like to ask Muslims, here's the problem. The Islamic world, because we have had what can best be described as royal fiqh, or royal jurisprudence, uh, meaning whoever is in charge or whoever is in power gets to determine Islamic jurisprudence, there are so many aspects. I mean, the Quran is so clear in Surah Kafirun, uh, 
where it says that lakum dinukum waliyadin for you your religion for me mine similarly uh, in surah baqara the quran is very clear when it says like rahafidin there can be and will be no coercion in matters of religion so that's what the holy texts say but that's not what muslim historic practices or more uh, 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 contemporaneous arguments being offered by mullahs of today uh, they, they are actually they find self justifying arguments and that's the real problem that we have uh, unfortunately one could argue that that happens in almost every religious tradition that at different points of time people invoke different parts of their own religious texts to advance their own arguments and unfortunately the arguments that have been advanced in the last at least couple of centuries have often been arguments in favor of uh, of uh, extremism and intolerance rather than in favor of tolerance and uh, acceptance uh, the whole idea of the people of the book and their special status that the people of the book basically because the muslims do consider the torah and the bible as books from god so therefore people of the book have a different stature and status in islam than people of other faiths but all of that has been lost in recent years uh, bishop and it is sad Well, I'm afraid we'll have to stop here. Um, I believe Ambassador Hakani and Bishop uh, Nazir Ali will be available for a few minutes outside of the auditorium. So, if you didn't have a chance to ask your question, you can speak with them afterwards. Would you please join me in thanking them both?